From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, March 28th. I'm Marco Werman. Democracy's on hold in Mali after a military coup there, but this Malian presidential candidate thinks democracy will be restored. The military leaders now have no choice than working with the people to transfer power so that democracy can continue to flourish. And later, a South African political party popular with whites tries to attract black voters. The younger generation born in a democratic South Africa, to a large extent, they don't see race anymore. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Two very different political realities are playing out in West Africa this week. Senegal has won international praise for staging a smooth presidential runoff election. That sets the stage for peaceful and democratic power transition there. But just as Senegal's east in Mali, democracy is on hold. The president of Mali was ousted last week in a military coup. And today, thousands of demonstrators took to the streets in the capital, Bamako, in support of that coup. But Mali's West African neighbors and the United States are all calling for an immediate restoration of democracy. Mali had been scheduled to hold a presidential vote next month. Ye Samake was a frontrunner in that campaign. I have to ask you first, where does this coup leave the Malian presidential vote? Is it still on? Well, we can only hope that it is on. Uh, we are living the same uncertainty right now as uh, people outside of the country. They talk about potentially holding elections soon, but a timeline has not been approved upon by the uh, political leaders in the country. So what is your position on this coup then? Do you agree with Captain Amadou Sanogo and his reasons for overthrowing President Toure? No, I will never bring myself to agree that coup d'etat is the way of solving our problems. Yes, Mali was in a difficult situation. Does that mean that we should encourage whenever we have difficulties that a group of people take arms to solve the problem? They are not doing any better than the people in the north taking arms to make legitimate claims asking for improvement of the living conditions in the north. But Mr. Samake, what about the thousands of demonstrators today in the Malian capital, Bamako, who support Captain Sanago and his fellow soldiers? You know, the people in Mali are showing support for the current uh, leaders that did the coup, not because they are in favor of the coup, but because they are against the previous regime. The way they managed the whole rebellion and also the way people are suffering in Mali, the way leadership has failed the people of Mali. 
This coup happened pretty suddenly. I- I'm wondering where you were, Yesamake, when it happened. I was right in front of the radio station when they attacked the ORTM, the national television. And we found ourselves surprised by militaries with gunfires. So there's a light that click in my head that this is likely to be a coup d'etat. Uh, since the coup last week, have you communicated at all with Captain Sanogo or any of his uh, soldiers about what's happening next? I met with Captain Sissoko in the heat of the moment. That was uh, the next day of the coup. I personally walked up to the military people and made a declaration condemning vigorously the coup d'etat. I discussed with him what are the vision, what has happened, why are they doing this, and what is the way out. I came to a clear understanding at that point that this was not thought through and they did not have a clear plan. So it was accidental to my understanding, a mutiny, and it ended up being a way for them to take over the power. And are you in touch at all with the other presidential candidates right now on how best to pave the way forward so that elections can happen? Every single day I meet with the five to six presidential, other presidential candidates. We just form an alliance called Alliance de Democrates Patriotes pour la sortie des crises. And that literally means uh, the Association for the Democrats and Patriots to get out of the crisis, literally. Yes. The military leaders now have no choice than working with the people to transfer power so that democracy can continue to flourish. And I believe in this. It takes the people of money. We cannot live under dictatorship anymore. The power needs to be given to a transitional government that needs to work for at the most nine months, making sure that we can hold fair and transparent elections. Yesamake in Mali. He was running for president of Mali before the coup d'etat last week. That's shaken up the political landscape there. Yesamake, good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. In South Africa, there are essentially two political parties, and support tends to fall along racial lines. Most blacks vote for the ruling ANC, the African National Congress, while most white and mixed-race voters support the Democratic Alliance. But recently, the DA has been trying to lure black voters. Anders Kelto has more. The Democratic Alliance has long been seen as South Africa's white political party. Their leader, Helen Zilla, is white. Their largest voting bloc is white. And their headquarters are in the Western Cape, South Africa's whitest province. But the DA is trying to change that image. Only one political party in South Africa is a party of the future. That party is the DA. That's 31-year-old Lindiwe Mazibuko speaking at a political rally last year. In October, she became the DA's new leader in parliament. That made her the highest-ranking black politician in the DA's history. Political analyst Eusebius McKaiser says her sudden appearance shook up the political scene because most South Africans are used to seeing black politicians side with the ANC, the party that led the struggle against apartheid. There's an expectation almost that the ANC is the real home for black South Africans. During her rise to power, Mazibuko held rallies in black townships, which are traditional ANC strongholds. At an event in Kailicha, a sprawling township on the outskirts of Cape Town, she challenged the ANC's monopoly on the black vote and strongly criticized their politics. This is the kind of politics that uses the scars of apartheid to hold the people of this country to ransom and tell them you can only vote for one party. We own your vote. It's not true. Nobody owns anyone's vote in South Africa. 
Political opponents have tried to discredit Mazubuko. They've said she's simply a black figurehead for a white party. At a press conference last year, Julius Malema, the controversial former president of the ANC Youth League, called her a tea girl for DA leader Helen Zilla. She's a tea girl of the matter, and uh, her role must remain there in the kitchen for making the tea for the matter. Mazibuko and DA officials maintain that her selection was based on her own political merits. But so far, Mazibuko's presence hasn't won over many black voters. The DA earned just 24% of the national vote in the last elections, and only 5% of the black vote. They continue to trail the ANC by a huge margin. Political experts say many black voters have trouble relating to Mazibuko, who's highly educated, grew up in a free South Africa, and didn't experience the struggle against apartheid. At the University of Cape Town, students gather around a controversial poster for the Democratic Alliance. It shows a white man and a black woman, naked from the waist up, in an intimate embrace. It says, in our future, you wouldn't look twice. Regan Allen, a spokesperson for the DA Youth League, says the poster reflects the DA's stance on race. Because we believe in an open opportunity society where all people are free, equal and secure. Allen is colored. That's the South African term for people whose ancestry is a mixture of European, Asian and African. He says an interracial couple shouldn't seem strange to South Africans today. The younger generation born in a democratic South Africa, to a large extent, they don't see race anymore. They see a friend and they see a person of color. They see a human being. (laughs) But a lot of young people don't agree. On the University of Cape Town campus, Nokwe Makanya, who is black, says it's ridiculous to suggest that young South Africans wouldn't look twice at an interracial couple or that they no longer see race. She says it even matters when you're applying to college, which South Africans call varsity. How can we not see race when you have to apply to varsity? You have to specify your own race. In this country, even though we are a rainbow nation, there are still stigmas and stereotypes of black and white. Another black student, Smanga Makalima, says ignoring race just isn't realistic. I don't think saying forgetting about race is necessarily the right step forward. Maybe in the future it won't matter, but for now it matters a lot. In many ways, the DA's quest for political power is a test of their assertion that race shouldn't matter. But if their slow progress against the ANC is any indication, most South Africans, and especially most black South Africans, aren't buying it. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto in Cape Town, South Africa. The ANC is also the party of Nelson Mandela. He's now 93 years old and retired from politics, but he remains South Africa's revered father figure. This week, a new digital archive documenting Mandela's life went live online. Visitors to the website can see everything from rare old pictures of a very young Mandela to digital video clips of their former president. The Nelson Mandela Center of Memory was put together with more than a million dollars donated by Google. Nastasia Tay is a journalist with Radio 702 in Johannesburg. She was at the archive's official launch. Well, it's an amazing collection, and it's all been digitized and put online, from really rare photographs to bits of video of of speeches that he made to his very own handwritten diaries. It's a real combination of of different elements of of his life. And on top of the documents and photographs and Nelson Mandela's own writings, uh, there are also personal interviews with Mr. Mandela. This is a snippet from one of those interviews where the South African leader looks back at his treatment at the hands of the guards uh, during the time he was imprisoned on Robben Island. They used to treat us very tough, 
But when there was an important visitor coming, then they would relax. They would say, I don't know, you don't have to work continuously. You can just take a walk around the quarry, and then we knew that a visitor is coming. But once the visitor is gone, the same uh, cruelty would uh, be mobilized. And uh, we didn't uh, compromise at all. We challenged them throughout. You know, Nastasia, having been on the site, I mean, it really looks and feels like a museum. And I guess that speaks to just what stature Mandela had before he was detained and while he was detained. I mean, people knew this man was important and somehow hooked to the destiny of South Africa. Absolutely. And and all the different bits and pieces that are on the archive have been collected by friends and family over the years. I mean, it's, it's really image heavy. If you actually had it on a tablet, you can zoom in and out with your fingers. It really feels like you're kind of turning the pages of the documents that are right in front of you. And I have to say just one small detail, Nastasia, Nelson Mandela's penmanship, extraordinary. Absolutely amazing. It's cursive. And yet it, it's just so neat. And it just really struck me. I I was looking at his calendars, the ones that were kept um, when he was in prison on Robben Island. And he actually keeps durations of his meetings. He he actually writes down how many hours and how many minutes they spent talking. I mean, he's just such an organized man. And you can really tell that from the documents. And so much of this is from a personal point of view for Nelson Mandela. Describe for us maybe one element that really struck you. The one thing that was really poignant for me was this amazing letter that he wrote to his two daughters. Um, In 1969, when he's on Robben Island, he's in prison, and his wife at the time, Winnie Mandela, is um, arrested, and she's taken away from the two daughters. And it's on this yellowing page, and and you can zoom into the letter and and read it. Um, He writes, My darlings, once again our beloved mummy has been arrested, and now she and daddy are away in jail. Gone are the days when after having a warm bath in the evening... You'd sit at table with mummy and enjoy her good and simple food. And then he goes on to say at the very end, don't worry, my darlings, we have a lot of friends, they'll look after you. And one day mummy and daddy will return and you'll no longer be orphans without a home. Then we'll live peacefully and happily as all normal families do, with lots of love and a million kisses. Yours affectionately, daddy. Nastasia Tay, a journalist with Radio 702 in Johannesburg, she's been speaking with us about a new online resource, the Nelson Mandela Center of Memory. For a link, just come to theworld.org. Nastasia, very good to speak with you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Still on the program, why some people smell like fish on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Don't look for quick closure on the health care law after this week's historic arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices aren't expected to rule until June, so expect the debate over health care to drag on in Washington and on the presidential campaign trail. That debate can seem baffling to observers outside this country. In Germany, for instance, they have a national health care system there. It requires people to have health insurance, and it's just posted a record 4 billion euro surplus. Reporter Miriam Widman has more from Berlin. Berlin is Germany's biggest city. It's like a lot of many U.S. cities its size. There's some violent crime, and there's lots of traffic. But what Berlin doesn't have, unlike a comparable U.S. city, is a lot of people who are uninsured. Work in a small bakery? You've got insurance. Ring up groceries at a supermarket? 
You've got insurance. Take care of kids at a daycare? Same deal. Für mich ist eine Frage einer gesetzlichen Krankenversicherung. That's health policy expert and conservative politician Wolfgang Zöller. He says having a national health plan is the humane thing to do. And he wants people to be helped when they're sick, regardless of age, income or preconditions. Wenn er krank wird, dass ihm geholfen wird. Zöller, a member of the Christian Social Union Party, is hardly a flaming liberal. Neither was Otto von Bismarck, the German ruler who started the plan in the 19th century. And neither is the country's health minister, who's a staunch supporter of the National Health Plan. He's a member of the pro-business Free Democratic Party. In fact, most Germans don't understand why a public health insurance plan has become such a political hot potato in the U.S. And few here comprehend why Americans toss around words like communism and socialism. That's Anne Marini, a spokesperson for the National Health Insurers Association. She says not every S means socialism. In Germany, the S doesn't mean a socialist principle, but one of solidarity. What Americans refer to as a government plan is not a government plan at all in Germany. Those on a so-called national plan have 145 non-profit insurance companies to choose from, and the government has no say in how the companies are run. A board composed of workers and employers runs the show. It's another busy day at one of Cynthia Barcomi's cafes. Barcomi is from Seattle, but she's lived longer in Berlin now than she's lived in the States, having come here in the 1980s as a dancer. Barcomi is in her late 40s, but she looks 20 years younger. Today, she has more than 40 employees between her two restaurants. And though the national health care system costs her a lot, she wouldn't have it any other way. We just cannot have people falling through the grid because they don't have health care, because they are not healthy. That's the basis for everything is people's health. Everybody pays a lot for sick people. You pay a lot less when you stay healthy than when you get sick. And I think that's the bottom line, that, you know, you cannot celebrate your own health if your neighbor is, like, completely falling apart. And I don't think people should lose sight of that. Barcomi and other business people view having health care as a competitive advantage because a healthy workforce is a better workforce and people are more productive if they're not worried about getting sick and how to pay for an illness. This idea of helping your neighbor is something that the health insurance spokesperson Marini picks up on. Marini says the United States comes across as a pretty religious society and notes that loving your neighbor is a basic principle of many religions. She wonders why that concept doesn't work its way into the discussion about health care. Marini and others say they will continue to follow the U.S. debate, even though parts of it are difficult to understand. For now, though, German insurers are arguing with the government over what to do with the record 4 billion euro surplus. For The World, I'm Miriam Widman in Berlin. Scottish poet Derek Thompson is not a familiar figure here in the U.S. Thompson was a Gaelic speaker from the Outer Hebrides, and he was one of the foremost Gaelic poets of his day. Thompson died this week at the age of 90. The world's Carol Zoll has this remembrance. Derek Thompson, or Rua the Macomish, as he was known in his native Scottish Gaelic, was a poet, publisher, scholar, dictionary maker, and he had an outsized influence on the language and culture from which he sprang. Born and raised in the village of Babel in the remote Isle of Lewis, he had a long career as professor of Celtic studies at Glasgow University and a parallel career as a publisher. It's impossible to imagine the world of the Gaelic language without Derek Thompson, Rody McComish. Journalist Ronald Black is editor of Nthul, 
an anthology of 20th century Scottish Gaelic poetry. He cites the 1951 co-founding of Goodham magazine as one of Thompson's greatest achievements. The quarterly literary journal lasted more than 50 years and launched many writing careers. It became the engine room for Gaelic literature, poetry and short stories in particular. Poet Ernesto McNeckel agrees that Thompson's influence stretched far beyond his work as a poet. He was a man who worked in a huge, wide variety of fields. Still, it's for his poetry that Thompson will best be remembered. He transformed Gaelic poetry. He was the first Gaelic poet to work in free verse, really, and that released people like myself into using the language in new ways, using new rhythms. That break from centuries of tradition, says MacNeckel, also opened Gaelic poetry to the influence of contemporary European poetry. An islander who spent most of his life in the big city, Thompson explored the theme of exile and the tension between the old ways and the new world. In one of his poems, Clouds, he talks about the gaiety and brashness with which he left his island. Then, describing the landmarks that he misses, he ends wistfully, but I went away from them on a tether, as far as love goes from hate. Poet Anus McNeckel says exile is almost an unavoidable theme for Gallic poets. I remember many years ago myself putting together the words in English that we were born with the shell of exile on our backs. If you're going on to higher education at all, it was almost inevitable that you would leave the island. Another theme in Thompson's poetry was the Gallic language itself, and what to Thompson was its painful decline during the course of the 20th century. Thompson himself translated his poetry into English, but always composed in Gallic. In his poem Coffins, Thompson describes how whenever he passes a joiner's or carpenter's shop in the city, he's transported to the workshop of his grandfather. He remembers the old man planing shavings from a plank as he made coffins. Here, Thompson recites the poem in a 1971 recording. Meditating on his grandfather's own death, Thompson then makes the leap to the situation of the Gallic language itself, saying, In the other school also, where the joiners of the mind were planing, I never noticed the coffins, though they were sitting all round me. I did not read the words on the brass, he says. I did not understand that my own race was dying, until the cold wind of this spring came to plane the heart, until I felt the nails piercing me, and neither tea nor talk will heal the pain. Thompson's verse was not always gloomy. He often employed a dry wit. In his poem, Mayev mi chui a glor, If I Ever Make It to Heaven, Thompson turns his eye on his own end. I quite believe, he says, that St. Peter will turn out to be a Lewis man, if I do sneak in at the gate. For the world, I'm Carol Zoll. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a man goes to work and people start telling him he smells funny. I just thought it was maybe something I'd eaten, even though I was never a great fish-eating fan, so I, I couldn't really understand where it was coming from. How genetics helped solve that mystery, ahead on The World. 
PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This was Pope Benedict XVI's last day in Cuba, and it was a busy one. He met with both Cuban President Raul Castro and his ailing brother Fidel. And this morning, he celebrated Mass before hundreds of thousands in Havana's Revolution Square. In his sermon, the pontiff urged Cubans to search for what he called authentic freedom, and he warned against those who tried to impose their own truth on others. Cuba's communist leaders didn't respond directly today. They'd already made clear yesterday that they're planning no political reforms on the island. Reporter Monica Campbell has more from Havana. Celebrating mass in Havana's enormous Revolution Plaza, packed with Cubans under a warm sun, Pope Benedict XVI praised Cuba and its move toward religious freedom decades after the communist revolution. That freedom started with the last papal visit 14 years ago that Benedict called a gentle breath of fresh air after the church was sidelined by communist Cuba. The country had previously aligned itself with Soviets and saw priests and nuns as elite counter-revolutionaries. Benedict described himself as a pilgrim of charity, and he was largely welcomed by Cubans, such as construction worker Tomás Quesada, who waited to see the pontiff. Quesada thanked the Pope for the visit, calling it a magnificent blessing. It's a key moment for Cuba. After creating the religious opening 14 years ago, the Vatican now hopes to create a political opening as well. That change will take time. Still, the church wants to stake its claim and be seen as a catalyst for change in the region and on the island. Rafael Hernandez edits a leading Cuban magazine. They could be recognized as an interlocutor for the government. If the government wants to release prisoners, they want to talk to the Catholic Church better than to a foreign government or to the European Union or to the political opposition. This was clearly seen in 2010 when Cuba's archbishop successfully won freedom for more than 100 political prisoners. But at the same time, the Pope won't go so far as to actually meet with dissidents this time. He did, however, say that he would pray for, quote, those who are deprived of freedom. Anticipating such comments from the Pope, who also called Marxism unrealistic, President Raul Castro struck back, criticizing the U.S. embargo for creating hunger and desperation. But Cuba also wins with the Pope's visit. Cuban religious scholar Enrique Lopez says that. The government noticeably improves its image abroad. And that the church serves as an alternative political party. Because here there's no space for the opposition. There's only one political party. But there are also tensions between the church and Cuba. Although Castro recently let the church open its first Catholic seminary here since the revolution began, the church still can open schools or new churches. Through an interpreter, Vatican spokesman Father Federico Lombardi said, It would be good for the church in many different aspects, teaching or health or many other aspects of social life where the church could give a hand and would be happy 
to help the country. What the Pope is saying is, give us a chance. The church knows Cuba is fertile religious ground. It's Latin America's least Catholic country. But while few Cubans actually attend church, more than half of Cuba's 11 million people identify with Catholicism. Step inside the home of Belen Garcia. She's 59, Catholic, and runs a nail salon from her home in downtown Havana. And she'll show you the variety of her religious objects. A variety of saints, including Afro-Cuban statues, also share space on Garcia's shelf. It's a typical religious mix with traditions inherited by African slaves brought to Cuba in the 1800s. But like the decades-long communist-run project here, the process of religious change here in Cuba and the Catholic Church's desire to solidify its role and presence here will be lengthy and require a willingness from both the government and the church to work side by side. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in Havana, Cuba. We're off to the wild steppes of Central Asia for today's GeoQuiz. The nation of Mongolia is famed for its arid plains and nomadic culture. Traditional music, including throat singing, is a key part of that culture. But things are changing as more and more Mongolians move to the city. That usually means the capital. It's Mongolia's biggest city and the focus of our quiz today. Its name translates as Red Hero, a throwback to the country's communist days. Its nickname, though, is Smog Hero, which tells you something about the city's air quality. The end of communism 20 years ago revolutionized life there, including Mongolia's music scene. We'll introduce you to the grunge band that led the musical revolution. First, though, name Mongolia's capital if you can. The science of genomics, many say, will transform medicine. As researchers find the genes that make our bodies function and malfunction, doctors should be better able to cure and prevent disease. But for now, the main impact is informational. Genetic tests allow doctors to diagnose disorders and patients to glimpse their medical futures, even when nothing can be done. It's a familiar story, but reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program Nova offers an unusual twist. Here is the tale of one man and one gene. Graham Lancaster kneels in front of a box of framed photographs. Ah, he's some... It sits in a corner of his home in Carlisle in the north of England. There's a couple from the, uh, from the police. That was one 1992. Lancaster holds up a picture. Fifty police officers are arranged into rows. That's me on the, on the back row, the big lump. Bigger than everyone else there, I think. He was only 22, but he was formidable. Six foot four, 250 pounds, and confident. My favorite times were nights, you know, chasing after stolen cars, (laughs) catching criminals, really. (laughs) I always used to pride myself on being able to catch most people. Aside from the paperwork, he loved the job. But a few years after that photograph was taken, he started getting odd remarks from his fellow officers. They said he smelled like rotting fish. I just thought it was maybe something I'd eaten, even though I was never a great fish-eating fan, so I, I couldn't really understand where it was coming from. 
How would you respond to them when they would say these things to you? I kind of just used to ignore the comments. And there was one guy who was, I remember him sniffing my hair. And he said, oh, it's your hair gel. So then I kind of used to blame it on that for a while. But then I realized it obviously wasn't the hair gel. And then the comments started getting more frequent. It wasn't just police officers who smelled the peculiar odor. Suspects told Lancaster that the interrogation room reeked of fish. Defense attorneys made comments, too. So Lancaster went to see his doctor. And he basically said it was all in my head. It was nothing to worry about. Try some strong soap, and that should sort it out. Lancaster began showering three times a day, sometimes four. He caked on the deodorant. But within 15 minutes of showering, the comments would start again. The remarks became harder and harder to stomach. Because people make the comments, you then think that people who aren't making comments can still smell it, but they're not saying anything. So you then start to become paranoid about it as well. Now, around that same time, in the late 1990s, a molecular biologist named Elizabeth Shepard at University College London co-discovered the gene that causes a rare condition called trimethylaminuria, or TMAU. TMAU is a disorder in which people are unable to complete the metabolism of a small molecule called trimethylamine. And that small molecule is derived from the ordinary foodstuffs that we eat, such as eggs, soya, meat. Most people have an enzyme that breaks down that molecule in their livers, but not if you have TMAU. The trimethylamine then just pervades your whole body and you will excrete it in uh, your urine, in your breath, and all your bodily secretions. And that molecule? It's what gives rotting fish its distinctive odor. In fact, TMAU is sometimes called fish odor syndrome. For some people, the condition can be triggered by liver or kidney disease, but for others, it's hereditary, caused by the gene Shepard discovered, although the symptoms may not appear until adulthood. The genetic form of the condition is rare, affecting perhaps 1 in 40,000 people. In the case of Graham Lancaster, a medical researcher recommended that he take a urine test to see if he had TMAU. It came back positive. Lancaster was relieved then you can kind of recognize it's not your fault. It's not the, the fact that you're unhygienic. You know, it's a definitive medical diagnosis that you've got something wrong with you. Once Lancaster knew what was wrong, he set about trying to fix it. Doctors recommended he keep a diary to track what foods made the odor better or worse. But it didn't help. Changes in what he ate didn't reduce the smell. He grew even more embarrassed and self-conscious. Ruined the enjoyment of the job. It kind of destroyed it all for me. The test that had given him the diagnosis had given him hope that things would change. But when they didn't, he spiraled into a severe depression. Lisa Clarion was Lancaster's girlfriend at the time. He was quite hard to get along with. He was, just wasn't himself, and, and I just didn't know what to do. I couldn't do anything, couldn't say the right thing. I couldn't see us ever coming through it, really. Things fell apart for Lancaster at work, too. He lost focus. He went on medical leave for a year and then was discharged from the force. His career as a police officer was over, not because he smelled like fish, but because of the resulting depression. 
Lancaster says part of what made things so difficult was he assumed that when scientists found the gene for TMAU, a cure would be right around the corner. Yet with many inherited conditions, including TMAU, the discovery of the faulty gene hasn't led to treatments or cures. The science has proved more complicated than many expected at the beginning of the genomics revolution. And there are additional obstacles for rare and non-life-threatening conditions like TMAU. Ian Phillips of Queen Mary University of London co-discovered the TMAU gene. He says he can't convince funding agencies to invest in the research needed to develop a cure. Personally, it's frustrating because having identified the genetic basis of the disease, we are no longer able to follow that up in any meaningful way that would be of use for the patients. But even without a cure, things did improve for Graham Lancaster. He gradually came to terms with his condition. He took up a more suitable career in IT, a job with less stress and no physical demands, so he was less likely to sweat and produce the fish odor. His relationship with Lisa improved, and they got married. By this time, there was another test for TMAU, a genetic test that could identify the specific mutations that caused the disorder. The test could tell family members, for instance, if they're likely to develop the condition, even if they don't currently have symptoms. And Lancaster was faced with a new decision about testing. Like it when he pops up. He and Lisa now had a daughter. What do you have to do? Ride the box up. My main concern was whether I'd passed on the defect to Emma. If she's going to get it, I'd rather be pre-warned and pre-armed so you can deal with it. They decided to test Emma when she was a year old. It came back positive, sort of. Emma had inherited a faulty copy of the gene from her dad and a somewhat faulty version from her mom. That means that Emma may develop a mild form of TMAU later in life. The test result caused Graham and Lisa to confront a new set of questions. Should they tell Emma, even though she may never exhibit the condition, what good would the information do her? It's similar to the dilemma many people face who've been tested for genes linked to diseases, like Alzheimer's, for which there's no good treatment or cure. If you find out you're at high risk, what do you do with that information? Graham Lancaster realizes there's a big difference between dementia and TMAU, But still, he says, it's nothing to laugh at. One of the most evocative things is is your smell. You know, sometimes you smell things, it brings back pleasant memories. And I read on some article that the smell of rotten fish is one of the worst things you can ever smell. So it's just unfortunate the TMAU doesn't smell of roses (laughs) rather than rotten fish. Lancaster says knowing what's in his genes and what he's passed on to Emma has helped him just not nearly as much as he'd hoped. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Carlisle, England. Ari's report for Nova and the World was made possible by the National Institutes of Health. Learn how the science of genomics is changing medicine on Nova's Cracking Your Genetic Code tonight on PBS and further explore the dilemmas posed by genetic testing. Visit the program's website, pbs.org nova. And if you want to share Ari Daniel Shapiro's story with others, stop by and see us at theworld.org. That's where you can find all our stories that have aired on the radio, and you can send the ones you really like to your friends. If you missed a story or a show, not to worry. Download the PRI mobile app for your phone at the iTunes or Android store and listen to the world at your convenience. Remember, that's always possible at our website as well, theworld.org.
This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The damaged reactors are under control and the cleanup can begin. Those were the assurances from the Japanese government three months ago in December about the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, the one that was doomed by the tsunami last March. Well, today we've got news that conditions inside at least one of the three crippled reactors there are much worse than had been thought back in December. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, joins me now with some of the details. Peter, so what do we know now and how do we know it? Well, Marco, we've learned two crucial things about one of the damaged reactors. That's Unit 2. Engineers have found that radiation levels inside are much higher than they'd thought and that levels of cooling water are much lower. And both of those, of course, are bad news. In particular, on the radiation levels, engineers have finally been able to directly measure levels inside Unit 2, and they've found that they're currently seven times higher than they'd thought, and that's 10 times the lethal dose for humans. And what about the water level? Well, they were also able to measure that for the first time in Unit 2, and the results are equally alarming. They thought the water level was about 10 meters above the floor of the containment building. Well, now they've found that it's only 60 centimeters. That's only about two feet of water covering the melted uranium fuel at the bottom of the reactor. The good news, though, is that the temperature of the water itself is far below the boiling point. That means that at least for now, the water is doing its job of keeping the fuel cool and preventing a new nuclear reaction. Why has it been so seemingly hard to get accurate information up till now, and how did the plant owners finally manage to get it? Well, they couldn't get it before because the instruments inside the reactors were destroyed by the tsunami. Now they've finally been able to cobble together a new set of instruments and insert them through a small slot built into this reactor number two. I should add, though, that it could be quite a while before they're able to get instruments into the other two damaged reactors. So should Japanese citizens, especially those who live near the Fukushima plant, be worried by this new information? Well, this doesn't necessarily mean that there's more imminent danger from the plant than had been thought. It also doesn't mean the plant is less under control. Those are both important to remember. What it does remind us is just how tenuous that declaration of last December really was, that the reactors had reached what they called cold shutdown, Mm. and how incredibly difficult it's going to be to clean the place up. The high radiation levels means it's going to be even harder for real people to be able to go inside the reactors as they try to decommission them. Government's already estimated that the cleanup will take 40 years. This new data could extend that horizon even further. And that's partly because without being able to get people inside, they're going to have to invent whole new tools to do much of the work. Meanwhile, the lower water level means that there's a very thin margin of error in case of a new leak in the reactor or a new accident. All three damaged reactors are being cooled by a jury-rigged cooling system, which is very vulnerable to a big new earthquake or tsunami. And as our reporter Sam Eaton told us in his recent reporting from Japan, those are still happening all the time. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, thanks very much. You're welcome, Marco. You heard Peter mention Sam Eaton's reports on Japan's ongoing struggles a year after the tsunami. You can hear Sam's whole series at theworld.org. We end our program today in Mongolia. The music scene there has been transformed since the collapse of communism. In a moment, we'll hear about the band that pioneered that transformation. They're from the capital, Ulaanbaatar, which is the answer to our geo-quiz today. First, we want to thank and shout out our geotexting game winners, Susan from Birch Island, Maine, Jenny from Berkeley, California, and Bernard in Chicago, all correctly named the capital of Mongolia, Ulaanbaatar. Test your geo-savvy. Next time, just text GEOQUIZ, one word, GEOQUIZ, to 69866. Now, reporter Lauren Knapp tells us how Mongolia's grunge metal scene got started. (laughs) 
you probably won't be shocked to learn that heavy metal is a recent addition to Mongolia's music scene. But it's really taken off. A couple hundred metal and grunge fans, mostly men in their 20s and 30s, packed a small club recently in Ulaanbaatar for the third annual metal showcase. The whole scene is kind of a throwback. A lot of the men have long hair and bang their heads in typical fashion. A group of high school kids started Mongolia's first grunge metal band, Nisvanis, in 1996. Anga is the band's lead singer. When we first started the band, we didn't know what kind of genre it should be. My friend Galsonso came and asked me if I knew about Nirvana, and we didn't know them. The boys were all classically trained in Mongolia's College of Music and Dance. The new abrasive sound was difficult for the band members to embrace. Tsatsa, Nisvanis' lead guitarist, remembers the first time he heard Nirvana. When I first listened to Nirvana, I didn't understand it and didn't really like it. The musical style was very strange, like nothing I had heard before. But even though I didn't like it, I thought there was something special about it. Everything sounded different. Then, after listening four or five times, I began to like it. Within weeks, the boys started writing songs heavily inspired by this classic American grunge band. And like Nirvana, the name Nisvanas refers to a Buddhist concept relating to the afterlife. If it was hard for a few forward-thinking Mongolian kids to accept the American grunge and metal of the mid-90s, it was even more difficult for them to develop an audience for it in their own country. At first, most people didn't appreciate our music at all because the titles and lyrics of our songs were not politically correct. We had songs called I Want to Destroy the School, Abortion, and Kill the Bank, and that kind of thing. But by 2000, Amga says all of that began to change. Nisvanas had released its first album a year earlier. Some of the people who listened to us thought we were unusual because the lyrics were so challenging to normal society. People thought we were just like her lyrics, almost inhuman. As Nisvanas' radio play increased, so too did their fan base. Here's a song called Nistik Tafik, or Flying Saucer. New alternative bands started cropping up. Tsatsa says rock, Britpop, alt-rock, and folk rock bands started forming, expanding the small live music scene. After we became accepted, many bands followed. They are the next generation of musicians. We were the first generation to play live music, and now they play alternative music here. We're really happy for them. The story of Nisvanas is the musical story of Mongolia's transition from socialism to democracy, from a closed society to an open one. Music has always had a big influence on Mongolian culture, even before democracy. But before the revolution, only a small group of people would listen to rock music. Now, people can listen to whatever they want, and we have a lot of musical genres. Rock, electronica, R&B, hip-hop. Now, the first generation of musicians born after the political transition is taking the stage. They're playing everything from metal to gangster rap to Korean pop. And they're expanding a music scene that bands like Nisvanas helped make possible. 
For the world, I'm Lauren Knapp, Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. Lauren Knapp is in Mongolia with support from a Fulbright MTVU fellowship. Headbanging Mongolian style, we have a slideshow and video of Ulaanbaatar's rock scene at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict. Online at usip.org. And the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and the Carnegie Corporation. PRI Public Radio International.